Section 5 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. The Revolution. In August 1687, James II went on a royal progress to reconcile the people to the late changes and to judge of their temper. During this progress, Lord Churchill waited upon him and seized an opportunity when alone with the king in the dean's garden at Westminster to represent to him the alarm with which his measures had inspired the great mass of the people, reminding him that he himself and at least nine-tenths of the English people were determined to live and die in the Protestant faith. James II angrily interrupted him, I tell you, Churchill, he exclaimed, I will exercise my own religion in such a manner as I think fitting. I will show favor to my Catholic subjects and be a common father to all my Protestant subjects of what religion soever, but I am to remember that I am king and to be obeyed by them. As for the consequences, I shall leave them to providence and make use of the power God has put into my hands to prevent anything that shall be injurious to my honor or derogatory to the duty that is owing to me. Nothing could teach James II wisdom. In his narrow-minded bigotry, he clung pertinaciously to his own ideas and would only listen to those who agreed with him. Even the moderate Roman Catholics disapproved of his violent measures and would have infinitely preferred a toleration obtained by legal means. The Pope himself disapproved of his policy and received his ambassador coldly. But James II committed one arbitrary act after another throughout the winter till it seemed as if every post in the kingdom was to be filled by a papist. In April 1688, he published a second declaration of indulgence to show that his mind was unchanged since last April, and ordered it to be read in all churches at the time of divine service for two successive Sundays. The clergy, who a few years before had proclaimed from the pulpit with zeal the doctrines of the divine right of kings and of passive obedience, refused almost to a man to obey the royal command. Archbishop Sancroft and six bishops, who were then in London, held a meeting in which they drew up a moderate petition to James II against the indulgence. Furious at this conduct, James II determined to punish the bishops. He found that the only way in which he could proceed against them was by prosecuting them for seditious libel. Proceedings were opened, and the bishops who refused to accept bail were taken to the tower, followed by crowds who hailed them as martyrs, and kneeling around them, implored their blessing. At the trial, in spite of all the endeavors of the government, a verdict of not guilty was returned, which was received with tumultuous rejoicings by the people. Even at the camp at Hounslow, the soldiers on whom James II thought he could rely raised a shout of joy when they heard that the bishops were acquitted. Whilst the bishops were in the tower, on the 10th of June, 1688, the Queen gave birth to a son. She had had four children before, but none had outlived infancy, and it was five years since the last had been born. 
In their excited temper, men suspected that the child was not really the queen's, and that an heir to the throne was being palmed off upon them. Before the child was born, papists had confidently predicted that it would be a son. The great mass of the nation now looked upon the whole affair as a papist hoax. At any rate, whether the true child of James II or not, it was certain that the little prince would be brought up as a Catholic. Men could no longer look forward to the end of the tyranny under which they groaned. There could be no hope of the peaceable accession of Mary and William. On the day of the acquittal of the bishops, a letter was dispatched to William of Orange at The Hague, containing an invitation to him to land in England with some troops. He was assured that thousands would at once flock to his standard. This letter was signed by seven of the leading personages who had for some time been in communication with William, all men of high rank and position, the earls of Shrewsbury, Devonshire and Danby, Lord Lumley, Edward Russell, Henry Sidney, and Compton, Bishop of London. William saw that his time was come. Many difficulties still surrounded him, but he began with diligence to prepare for an expedition to England. New offers of aid and support arrived daily. Even Sunderland, James II's chief minister and the supporter of all his schemes, who had been willing in order to please James II secretly to profess himself a Catholic, opened communications with William. He saw that there was no hope that James II would be able to maintain himself, and thought it wisest to provide for the future by offering to communicate to William the most secret plans of James II and his government. Churchill assured William that he would do his utmost to bring the army over to him, and wrote, If you think there is anything else that I ought to do, you have but to command me. Nothing could rouse James II from his obstinate folly. To the last, he could not believe in the danger which was clear to everyone else. The only step he took made matters worse. Thinking to increase the forces at his command, he brought over some Irish troops, which irritated to the last degree both the English soldiers and the people who looked upon the Irish as papist barbarians. On October 10th, William published his declaration, in which, after drawing attention to James II's illegal acts, he stated that at the invitation of many lords spiritual and temporal, he was about to invade England for the purpose of securing a free and legal parliament, by the decision of which he would abide. On the 5th of November, 1688, he landed at Torbay in Devonshire, and soon after entered Exeter. His landing in the west of England had not been looked for, and the preparations of his friends there were not ready, so that William was at first mortified by finding that no persons of importance joined him, though the people everywhere hailed him as their deliverer. Meanwhile, James II had at last been roused to a sense of his danger, and was trying by every possible means to win back the favor of his people. He promised at once to summon a parliament. He abolished the court of high commission, and conferred with those bishops who were in London as to the means he had best take. But the people were not in a mood to value highly concessions which they saw had only been wrung from him by fear. Day by day, 
James II heard of new persons of importance who had gone to join William. The army had been sent on to Salisbury, and James II set out to join it himself. He heard that in the north the nobility and gentry were rising in William's favor, and he was anxious to engage William in battle before his position was more secured. But at Salisbury he soon saw signs that his army could not be trusted. One night, Lord Churchill and the Duke of Grafton, a natural son of Charles II, stole away to join the Prince of Orange. Churchill left a letter behind him in which he tried to explain away his treachery by saying that only the inviolable dictates of his conscience and a necessary concern for his religion could have led him to take such a step, adding, I will always with the hazard of my life and fortune endeavor to preserve your royal person and lawful rights. James II was still further alarmed by hearing that others of his officers refused to obey his commands. He felt that his own person was not safe, and in alarm broke up his camp and ordered the army to retreat on London. Everything was in confusion. As the army retreated, one by one the nobles who had accompanied James deserted. He reached London only to hear that his daughter, the Princess Anne, had fled to join the rebels in the north, accompanied by Lady Churchill and Compton, Bishop of London, and it soon became clear that only two courses were open to him. Either he must submit to the will of the nation and enter into negotiations with the Prince of Orange, or else he must fly. James II was determined to do anything rather than submit. He professed to be willing to enter into negotiations with William so as to gain time for his wife and child to escape to France. When he had heard of their arrival there, he fled himself to join them, having first destroyed all the writs which had been prepared for summoning a new parliament. He hoped to make matters more difficult for his enemies by leaving everything in confusion behind him, and as he crossed the Thames, he flung the great seal into the water. He had also left orders that Feversham was immediately to disband the army. When his flight was discovered, the greatest terror reigned in the city. There was no government, no one owned the authority necessary to keep order. It might be several days before William could reach London. Till then, it seemed as if the mob would have full license to rob and plunder at their will. At this alarming moment, prompt measures were taken by such peers and prelates as were then in London. Together with the city council, they formed themselves into a provisional government to maintain order till the prince should arrive. James II's flight made it easy, even for the most staunch supporters of the prerogative, conscientiously to take up the part of the Prince of Orange, for it was impossible to pay obedience to a king who had voluntarily abdicated his kingdom. Matters were complicated by the capture of James II at Sheerness whilst he was trying to escape. The lords ordered him to be set at liberty, and he once more came back to London. William, who was then at Windsor, saw that it would be impossible to keep order if both he and James II were in London at the same time. After much deliberation, 
he sent some of his troops before him to occupy the city and sent orders to James II to leave Westminster at once. James II asked to be allowed to go to Rochester, and permission was gladly given. William and all his friends wished nothing more than that James II would again try to escape. James II knew that they wished it, and saw well that it was the worst thing he could do. But fear had completely unnerved him, and he only longed to feel himself far away from his enemies. He was so negligently guarded that escape was easy, and before many days were over, he was safe in France, where Louis XIV received him with tender cordiality and gave him the palace of Saint-Germain as his residence. William's first steps were full of difficulties. The machinery of government was destroyed, and he could not consistently with his declaration assume the power of king and act as conqueror. He first summoned a meeting of the peers and a meeting of all those members who had sat in the parliaments of Charles II, and then in conformity with their desires, provisionally assumed the government and issued writs to summon a convention of the free estates of the realm. His wise measures soon brought back a feeling of order and security, and the elections were quietly and speedily carried on. When the convention met, for a time a great difference of opinion showed itself between the different parties as to the steps which were to be taken. Some wished for a regency, others that Mary should be queen alone, others again that William should be king and his wife only queen consort. For a time William kept himself aloof from the discussion and did not allow his own opinion to be known. But at last he made it clear that he would consent neither to be a regent nor to be the subject of his wife. Mary, too, on learning the way in which her rights were advocated by some, wrote a letter in which she stated that she would never be queen alone. At this crisis, her perfect devotion to her husband helped to make clear the only course which could safely be taken. It was decided to offer the crown jointly to Mary and William. By the influence of the Churchills, Anne was brought to waive her rights, so far as to consent that should William survive his wife, he should be king for his lifetime, but should have no power of passing on the crown to children born to him by any wife but Mary. On the 12th of February, 1689, Mary landed in England, and on the 13th, William and Mary were proclaimed king and queen amidst general rejoicing. Before accepting the crown, they had given their adhesion to a document called the Declaration of Right, which bound them to govern in accordance with the principles of the English Constitution. This declaration stated that the dispensing power claimed by James II had no legal existence, that no sovereign could raise money or maintain a standing army without the consent of Parliament, that the nation had a right to free representation in Parliament. So this great revolution was peaceably accomplished. The rights of the people were once more clearly affirmed, and the attempt of the Stuarts to set up a personal monarchy ended in complete failure. Henceforth, it became impossible for any monarch in England to govern without the support of Parliament, or to rule except in accordance with the will of his people. End of Section 5